Hello, and welcome to Shed. I'm your host, Eric Adams, and today we are fortunate to have with us Curtis Chandler. Curtis is someone who, like many Islanders, wears a number of hats. He was born and raised on Martha's Vineyard. He's a husband, a father, a lacrosse coach, a recovery coach, a member of the Wampanoag tribe, a detective for the Egertown Police Department, and my friend for close to 15 years. Welcome to Shed, my friend. Um, thank you. I'm uh, happy to be here. How long have we been friends? Uh, 14 years. Is it 14? Yeah. Yeah. A little over 14. Yeah. Coming up on 15. It's been a while. Yeah. I don't have a lot of friends that I've kept for 15 years. No, I don't think I, neither do I. It's probably because yeah. we don't see that much of each <laughs> other or something like that. Exactly. Um, you do a lot of things. You wear a lot of hats. You, you assume a lot of roles. What's your favorite role? Uh, I'd say father, you know, being here on the Island and, and growing up and being able to raise my family here is, mm-hmm. it's been awesome and pretty special. Was that an easy role for you to adjust to? No, no. What was it, difficult? Um, you know, having, I have a boy and a girl, um, and you know, just the f- trying to, be all of those other things and do the best I can from, from my family and my kids mm-hmm. sometimes feels like a, a, a challenge mm-hmm. being tugged in different directions. Um, cause I want to give everything I got. And that's kind of the way I have. Yes. You know? I know that about and you. You used to tell me a lot to slow down. <laughs> <laughs> have you slowed down? Negative. <laughs> <laughs> the role I wanted to talk a little bit about is your role as a detective for the Egertown police. When did you realize you wanted to work in law enforcement? So my father told me when I was 17, 17 or 18 years old that I was going to be a cop. Really? Yeah. And uh, Did you believe him at the time? Absolutely not. Hmm. I had no desire to be a police officer wow. at that point in my life. Um, I was getting ready to go to, off to college. I was going to be a uh, Division One lacrosse player. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was supposed to go to college and like study classes as well but i was i was out of here and i wasn't coming back and i wasn't Mm going to be a police officer i was going to be a biology major um i was thinking that i wanted to do something with science as far as marine biology or something to that effect Mm -hmm. i liked being on the water um and then i found myself a few years later uh stuck against kind of back against the wall a little bit Mm -hmm. my plans didn't work out and i came back home and got sober mm-hmm. and that you know and my life kind of changed from there. trajectory sobriety has a way of doing that yes it does and that's where we met we first met when we were both early on uh, yep. getting sober since the murder of george floyd we as a country have started to take a closer look at how we police and the role that policing has in different communities what's it been like for you being a police officer in a post George Floyd world. So when I got onto the job, I was super excited. I remember driving to my station, uh, one shift. It was just like Sunday afternoon or something like that. Mm-hmm. I was in my nice new pressed uniform and a nice clean cruiser. And I was like, I made it. Like I felt like I'd finally 
arrived, mm-hmm. right? I'm working at, I think, the best department on the island, and uh, I felt great, you know, and I could do anything. Mm-hmm. After George Floyd, I there was, and I talked to you about this, mm-hmm. there was definitely some times where I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Why? I, I felt like we were being vilified. Mm-hmm. And when I And I say we, because I was at the time thinking about like police as a whole, Mm -hmm. like we're almost ashamed to tell people that I'm a police officer. Wow. You know, I remember somebody telling me, uh, somebody saw me that I went to school with when I elementary school with, and they're like, you're a cop. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Mm -hmm. I I thought you were going to do so much more. No kidding. And I like that stung, you know? Sure. Cause I was like, I think I am doing a lot. (laughs) Right. Um, or at least that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I also had the realization too, that like, who else is going to do it? Like, I think we do a really good job here. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think we make mistakes? Absolutely. We're human. We all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, uh, the guys that I work with and the, the females that I work with, everybody has the best intentions you know, do you think that's true for all police officers? I think for the most part, mm-hmm. you know, I, I worked with, and I, I went to, I went to two different academies. I went to the Academy at Fletzy, um, for the Indian police Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I, I used to work for the Wampanoag tribe. Mm-hmm. You're part of the tribe. I am mm-hmm. part of the tribe. Um, and then I also went to the Boston police Academy big agencies and then small agencies, right? I think they all have the same. They all want to to do the best they can. Uh, They also see some really horrible stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Some of the guys that I was working with out in that Fletzy, they, they were gearing up to go back to their reservations where it's essentially a third world country, Hmm. right? Also just, the one of the guys was talking about how they were armoring his cars so that they would take because they were going to be taking fire going to calls. Wow. Um, uh, just the amount of resources that they they have or don't have. Um, one guy, his jurisdiction was almost four states, um, and he's going to be a solo officer responding to some calls mm-hmm. by himself. He's got hit four different radios in his cruiser, mm-hmm. depending on which state he was in. Um, that's a really hard task to, to, you're going to be going to a domestic, maybe taking fire and you're going to have to do this by yourself. Mm -hmm. Whereas then you go to Boston and they're like, basically there's six of you on every corner. Um, but then they still deal with a bunch of stuff that I don't deal with Mm -hmm. here on Martha's Vineyard. Like what? just some of the level of violent crime mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Um, and they just, there's more people, mm-hmm. so there's more issues, more problems. I think being a part of our community, like we are here definitely helps. Um, cause it definitely adds a little bit of, uh, understanding mm-hmm. that you wouldn't have working in some other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, what happens for you, Curtis, if anything, 
What are you think? What are you feeling? When you see these videos of unarmed people killed by police, things like George Floyd or Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, do you have a reaction? Yeah, I, I definitely have a reaction. What is it? Um, a lot of times it's disgust. Yeah. Um, you know, they're tarnishing my name too, mm-hmm. right? Um, do I think all of those situations, uh, the officer was necessarily completely wrong? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think each one that you, you named, like, they're just, they're completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, just unacceptable. One thing that is the same well, I guess not with Tamir Rice technically, because he did have a toy gun. Yeah, but the tactics in that were horrible, mm-hmm. right? Like looking back, you watch the video, and it's just like, how, in what world does that seem like a good idea? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. It's just it's def- difficult to watch because, but at the same time, I'm not there, so you have the way we're supposed to judge things, mm-hmm. right? With not with 2020 hindsight, mm-hmm. we're trying to be in the officer's mind at that time and the way they teach me to look at things. Mm-hmm. But, but then as a human being, you look at it and you're like, that just doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. Like that shouldn't be acceptable. You know, and I think now we're trying to demand more of our officers you and do. that's a good thing. You do. Do you yeah. think that the protests played a part in that? I think so. I mean, perhaps, but there's also a way to do things too. Burning down your city isn't necessarily. A, I get being frustrated, mm-hmm. and being angry. Well, when you think about the protests, is that what you think about? That's what I think about. You do. I do, and just disorder. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, that that's where we get. We're we're in a better place mm-hmm. now. I think. And I think we're moving towards a better place. I agree. I got into law enforcement because. I want to be a positive impact to my community. Right. I and want to serve are. others. Mm-hmm. All right. I got sober uh, when I was 22 years old. I had no direction. Um, and I wanted to be a role model for people, for other young Islanders. Um, you also know that, you know, I'm a member of the tribe. Mm-hmm. And my, my father's also African-American. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I, I'm, I've struggled with that not struggled it's something hard to come to terms not come to terms with it's just i'm biracial yeah right like mm-hmm. and so like i don't like but i don't look that way right mm-hmm. i don't identify that way mm-hmm. but i do sometimes mm-hmm. so when, when are you when were your first recollections of race and and this idea that you were someplace in this in-between world i want to say it was relatively young like eight or nine mm-hmm. and that guy i think what i essentially realized was not everybody has black cousins hmm. like i just thought everybody did for the longest time because <laughs> everybody does if you look far yeah, enough, yeah no exactly think, right? yeah but like my first cousins were you know black uh-huh. we'd go off to randolph to visit them and like I don't know. I just thought that was normal. Mm-hmm. Then I realized it wasn't. Do you re- do you remember when you first realized that there were real disparities between the races? No. I, or that not, racism existed? I remember having conversations with my dad, you know, and part of the reason why he came to the island was because it was different here. Mm-hmm. And he got treated differently here. Uh, 
he, he like he liked being here. Like he used to summer here as a kid, mm-hmm. and you know he, he's he would tell me that you know he grew up in Weymouth and he was uh, a little too dark for the white kids and yeah. not quite dark enough for the the black kids. I've heard that before, right? Mm-hmm. And I also remember being young and and having this idea in my mind that I wish I had my dad's struggle, hmm. so that I could share that. And it doesn't, it's not really rational, but like it was one of those things like we didn't have in common because I looked the way I look. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I'm sure he's probably thankful for that. Mm-hmm. I probably have a bit of an easier time than he did. You know, um, have you had situations in your life where people will say things or treat you differently because they don't identify you right away as someone, as a person of color? Absolutely. Can you, can you give me an example um, or two? I remember playing hockey off island in uh select league. And, uh, one of the kids on the team was making jokes about a black kid on another team, mm-hmm. some racist jokes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, after the game and I, I was one of the was one of the better guys on the team but after the game i introduced them all to my dad wow and they were like I, that kid's face <laughs> he was horrified wow he didn't know what to do um, did he ever say anything to you i no nah, i don't think so but like i could tell that he knew mm-hmm. like um and maybe the next game or practice or, or a game or whatever that he was like, you know, you know, I was just joking around, you know, like mm-hmm. maybe that came up, but I don't think so. I think it was just one of those unspoken things. Has it ever come? I never really, I never felt like it was my place to, to argue that or fight with that, or it was my fight. And that's what it feels like sometimes for me because I look the way I look. So what do you back that up a second? What do you mean it's not your fight? You felt like because I don't have a leg to stand on because I I, I benefit from uh, white privilege. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I don't say anything, no one's going to say anything back. Mm-hmm. Right. Has it come up in your work as a police officer? Yeah, it definitely has. You know, I've had I've had some instances where people have accused me of. Um, I don't know, targeting somebody because they're uh, African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you mind telling the story of the mother who... Yeah, so I, I, had, a, I had a young individual. I had him on camera. Um, he was stealing checks and cashing checks, right? African-American kid? An African-American kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at the time, like kids are juveniles, so it, it most likely was going to be dealt with as far as like a diversion type of thing or... Um, but I had, I had to interview him and I called the mother in and had the mother come in and like partway through the interview, she's basically insinuating that I'm, I'm just doing this because he's a young black kid. Mm-hmm. I'm like, sorry, man. Like, no, that's not the case. Like mm-hmm. I have video footage and I was like, and not for nothing, but my father's black. Like why? I wouldn't do that. Did that change her? It definitely changed the the tone of the the rest of the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I tried to explain to her that I was like, "Look, we're I'm here to try to help your son make better decisions in the future, right? You know, it, it, 
it just isn't the end of the world. But at the same time, if he continues on this line, like it, it's not going to go well, right? He's going to be, he's going to make a harder life for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, Curtis, one of the things that I think makes you so good at responding to people that are struggling with substance use disorder in your role as a police officer and probably in your personal life as well is that it gives you a higher level of empathy than probably most police officers have responding to those situations. I assume just because you've had that lived experience. Do you think there's enough empathy in policing? I think we're getting there. Okay. You know, and I I think every officer that starts their profession and starts their career, they all do it for the same reason. What is that? To be of service, right? Everyone wants to be there to help people. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think I've heard anybody else say anything different. Hmm. I may have said when I first started that I, I wanted to shoot guns and drive fast. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a joke. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, really, my real reason and the whole, whole reason I became a police officer was to help people. I know that's true. Um, you know, when I got sober, like it, that was one of the, the one of my... Uh, one of the things I had to ante up for, to, for, to have a good life, mm-hmm. right? was that I, I have to live a life of service, mm-hmm. right? And I was trying to figure out a way to do that that didn't pay me to help people uh, as far as like substance abuse or in a, some sort of 12-step setting because mm-hmm. I thought that that was a freely given gift, right? So I should give it freely. Um, but law enforcement seemed like a way I could do that and be there for people in a whole bunch of different capacities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's ultimately why I did. And I think that's ultimately why a lot of guys do it. Mm-hmm. I think what happens over time is there's a disconnect at some point when you deal with people on a regular basis and you don't see the positive outcomes, you start to get jaded. Mm-hmm. I definitely felt it, you know, um, I was working nights for like three years, four years. You just start getting negative. You know, shift work is hard. You're living an opposite life. You know, everybody else is up during the day and you're awake during the middle of the night and nobody's around. And and that's usually when you get some, you can get some very intense calls. You mm-hmm. go from zero, nothing going on to all of a sudden in the middle of nothing. Mm-hmm. It, it's hundred miles an hour you're flying to a call Mm -hmm. and somebody's yelling for help right um that can be and then you go and you do you handle your business and and then it's back to nothing you don't see anybody and you it's just it can take its toll on you and 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 that empathy that you have developed over years i remember saying something to my wife to this effect that it feels like i'm becoming hardened Hmm. even here on Martha's Vineyard, mm-hmm. right? Like I can only imagine what it's like for my fellow officers in Boston where they're dealing with shootings and stabbings and, and some really tough stuff. And I, I'm here, you know, and I'm dealing with it too, but just on a much smaller scale. But Curtis, it's a great point. I mean, I don't know that I know any police officers that couldn't talk about having some sort of trauma in their life whether it's responding to an overdose or a suicide or um, being shot at or being in a high-speed chase, do you think we do enough? Is there enough support for 
the mental health of police officers. And we're getting there. We're getting to a better spot. Are right? we? You know, I'm on our. I'm one of our peer support officers in Agartown. Um, we also are affiliated with the crisis, uh, keep crisis team. Um, and after certain critical incidents, uh, deaths, um, particularly violent calls or anything like that, or an officer injured or something, that team will come over and we'll do a debrief. And it's not a debrief of like how we handled the situation tactics. Cause mm-hmm. we do that. We do that well. Right. Mm-hmm. It's more of a debrief of like, how are you feeling? You know, and I've been a part of a few of those, uh, and it helps you process where you're at. Right? Is that something new? It's it's been a, happening a long time in the fire EMS mm-hmm. side of the the, the, the building, um, and it's happening more now on, on the police side of things. Do you and think it's fair for people that don't really know what it's like to be? Uh, working as a police officer because it really is a job that has unique challenges. I mean, you've just described some of them. Do you think it's fair for people who haven't walked in your shoes to judge you around how you're responding to these sometimes life or death situations? I'd argue that I don't think it's fair necessarily because we, we don't have the layperson judging a bunch of doctors and telling them how to do business, hmm. right? We don't have a bunch of uh, layperson uh, telling lawyers that, you know, they're not doing a good job and they're being disbanded. Uh, we don't hear the disbarred. same criticisms towards soldiers right. sometimes, you know, often. You know, um, at the same time, in order to affect some sort of change, I think we need to be open-minded to changing. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes law enforcement can be a little bit um, stuck in our ways, mm-hmm. right? Like this is the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. This is the way we're going to keep doing it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. I'd argue it's broke. It's broke, right? Mm-hmm. And know. I think we're seeing more clearly today than we have in a long time, or at least acknowledging it publicly that we have a broken system that needs to be fixed. Yeah. And there's and it's not just law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I think the criminal justice system as a whole needs to change. You you. It brought up the 13th, uh, 13th, right? Yeah, the movie 13th. You know, there's a lot of things that aren't right in our criminal justice system. Agreed. And we are just a part of it. You know, we're the very visible part of it that everybody sees. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and we're the part that it affects a lot of people more intimately, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we need to be open to changing. And I think we are, you know, I know, I know here on Martha's Vineyard, you know, a lot of our departments are accredited. Um, and then, and we're working towards that, um, more professionalized police departments. Mm -hmm. One of the, uh, best ways I've heard about talking about police reform is changing policing from, an attitude of a warrior to an attitude of a guardian. Do you think that's happening in police training? I, yeah, it definitely is. And you know, I, I, it's been a little while since I been at the Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that is a change that has started to occur. Did and, you get that kind of guardian kind of mentality training at the police Academy or I was think it more so. a warrior? 
I think so. I think it's always been that sort of guardian sheepdog protector. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's sort of what the mindset at the academy that they gave, gave us. Mm-hmm. But there's also the aspect of being a warrior at times when you need to be, it's even when you're a guardian. Mm-hmm. But you have to be able to temper that and bring it back. Um, Curtis, we talked, you mentioned change you mentioned awareness and as a trained recovery coach i know that you know the stages of change like i do the change we've talked about that on this on this program that the first stage being pre-contemplation where we don't know that there's a problem the second stage being contemplation we're starting to think about it the third stage being awareness where we really now understand that something needs to change and then the last stage being, or the fourth stage being action, where we do something about it. The last stage being maintenance. If you use that framework or that lens and apply it to policing, maybe both here on the island but nationally, where do you think we are in the stages? I would say that we're most likely, we've identified that there is a problem, right? Okay. For the most we're aware part, of it. We're, we're aware of it. Mm-hmm. We, we know it's there. I think there's different, I think, Different places are different, um, like, you know, nationally, maybe we're not quite as far along as we could be. Okay. Um, here on the vineyard, I, I think we're starting to, to take that action. But there are a number of initiatives on the island that speak to this idea that we are starting to make some changes based on, upon a greater awareness of what our communities really need from policing. I think the recovery coach model as well as project outreach are really good examples of that. Yeah. And then we also have the hub. Can you talk a little bit about the hub? Yeah. So the hub is, I think it's started in, I want to say Canada. It did. Started in Canada. Um, And it's basically, you're bringing all the players together. Uh, Here on the island, we're doing it uh, once every two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have... uh, Brian Morris from Island Healthcare um, and a bunch of different other uh, disciplines. They meet, they present. We, as the law enforcement, sometimes we're adding, we're we're giving a lot of our clients to them. People who are at the highest risk. Right, highest risk. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also meet a variety of, they they might have substance housing and employment issues, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Or the mental health issues mm-hmm. and substance abuse. And they, they have a multitude of problems that we can't just solve by ourselves. We're not going to arrest our way out of that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're bringing that to the table and a bunch of these other people get to an opportunity to uh, network and figure out how they can help this person. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and we're having some pretty good success with it. Uh, and, and, and I think that is also helping law enforcement in the fact that we're not there to fix every problem. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, we have an identified a problem. Here it is. Now go. Mm-hmm. You guys help us fix it because <laughs> <laughs> we can't do it all. When we talk about police bias, because that's another thing that we've talked a little bit about is bias in policing. And I think you've done some training around that. Yep. Can you identify police bias on the island? And where do you think we are with so, the stages of change when you apply it to police bias. We've started taking, um, so I, I went to fair and impartial policing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've become an instructor in that. And we'll be for in service. We've gotten that training for the last few years. Um, 
but I'll be giving it to all of our new officers um, and new employees. But basically, I sum the whole thing up in just the golden rule. You know, it's it's pretty treat everybody as if you you know how you would want to be treated, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's a boiled down version, but identifying those implicit biases that we have, that we all have, and being able to recognize that, see it, and not allow that to influence your law enforcement decisions is basically what the class is about Mm -hmm. and teaching that to officers. Do you find that officers are open to that idea or resistant? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. I I think everybody's kind of open because it's not accusatory. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... I, first, and I'm going to tell, I'll tell you, like, I didn't want to do it. Why? Um, because I, I felt like my chief picked me because I'm uh, biracial. Uh-huh. And I was kind of like, I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> I don't want to teach this because nobody's going to want to listen to me. Right? Interesting. It's not a top. This is an uncomfortable conversation. It is. Have, right? Mm-hmm. Sitting down and talking about race. Like, I, I told you that before. Like, mm-hmm. it's a conversation I never wanted to have, you know, because it makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't know why, but it makes me feel ashamed mm-hmm. that I, I look the way I look. I think our country in general is uncomfortable yeah. talking about race. Yeah. People get very defensive. Nobody wants to be called a racist or think no. that they're acting in racist ways. Right. On the podcast, we've talked about the idea that racism is better viewed on a spectrum, right? So that everyone has been affected by racism who's grown up in this country, some mm-hmm. to a, a greater degree and some to a lesser degree. If we apply the stages of change to race and racism, where do you think this country is on the stages of change around really accepting the idea that in many ways this is a racist society? I'd like I'd like to say we were like we've recognized the problem and we're we're acknowledging it and, and moving moving forward mm-hmm. and, and making some real change. Mm-hmm. But how many times have we been here? Like, have we been to this point before? You know, I think a lot of times, and, and I think we talked about this before, but like in law enforcement, I think part of developing that empathy and part of the, the, the impartial policing class is taking a look at our history mm. and actually acknowledging it. Because we didn't have that in the academy in law enforcement. No? No, we didn't look at it. Like, there's a reason why people are afraid of us, right? There was a training officer in this in this. Uh, article that I was reading and he was with his new recruits and they were taking a simple, um, I think it was like a, a B and E report or something like that past B and E. And the woman was giving him such a hard time giving the, the young recruit and the young recruits just trying to take notes mm-hmm. and like do his job and like get this, the facts out so that he can go and, and write up his report. So he gets a bunch of the facts and he goes and the woman's just giving him a hard time, giving him a hard time. And the training officer recognized and saw that she had a tattoo on her forearm, mm. right? This is like an 80 year old woman, right? And he, he started talking to her a little bit more and getting an idea of the fact that she saw him as a uniform mm-hmm. and that's it, mm-hmm. right? And she saw that uniform the last time she saw that uniform like that and, and she had a, a very different experience sure so she was bringing her own stuff and i think recognizing that we bring that our own stuff to every interaction that we're in mm-hmm. uh, one for the officer to realize that i didn't do anything this time mm-hmm. but somebody might have done something to this person mm-hmm. 
and, and having that compassion and empathy to allow that person to have that feeling, but also give them a different experience. Mm. You know, and by the end of it, the officer had a great conversation with her and, you know, but he, he, if he had just allowed his younger recruit to do that, that, that recruit one wouldn't have known mm -hmm. that this person had a, a negative experience and he would just go off thinking this person was a, a jerk. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I, as a country, I think I want to believe that we're moving in the right direction. I think it's having more of these uncomfortable conversations about race. Uh, I think doing this as hard as it can be mm -hmm. is, is the right thing to do. I know? agree. Well said. Well, Curtis, thanks for being here. We really appreciate you sharing your story with us. And thanks to you at home for listening to another episode of Shed. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. It is produced by Eric Adams, Bill Evel, Chris Fisher, Amy Schumer, and Jack Ebby, with audio production by Anthony Esposito and Dana Edelman. <laughs>